research shows that when we're able to find moments of joy or moments of positivity, they don't have to be big, but these small moments within a crisis or within a tragedy that it enables a couple of things. One, that it helps reset our physiological responses to stress so that it actually aids our resilience in that way. And then that it also facilitates a more adaptive coping style. That's the psychologist term that we are more likely to grow from adversity when we have these glimmers Mm. of joy or gratitude or love or affection within our negative times, um, Mm. within our struggle, than if we don't allow those in. And I think that some of that is about finding it and some of that is about allowing it. Because sometimes when things are this hard, it's hard to allow ourselves. We feel like it's not necessarily appropriate to be laughing or it's not appropriate to be joyous. But allowing ourselves that, recognizing that it is deeply human to find these moments of joy everywhere in any time. We're hardwired to find joy because it's a part of our survival. Our emotions are not calibrated for that. They're calibrated to to find these little spikes of joy because it's part of what helps us thrive. And and we may not be thriving now, but the glimmers of it, I think, help help sustain us through times Mm. like this. I think they are an important part of what will make us resilient in Mm. the face of crises like this. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. The last 30 plus days have been really hard. The struggle, the fear, the anxiety, the exhaustion, the shock, guilt, and the sadness. Sadness for those who are sick. Sadness for those we've lost. Sadness for what has been lost collectively. Our way of living. Our way of being together. But I've noticed something else. Something else that's emerging in me. Something that I'm hearing from clients, colleagues, friends too. Something collectively is emerging like the daffodil buds pushing through the spring snow. There is an energy that's rising up in the sadness. And the energy for me is showing up in a commitment to a new way of being. I feel it in me. And I see it in others. I know my life will never be the same after this. I know I'll never be the same. And I can see that already in everyday moments. I sense it today when my... One-year-old Zoom-bombed a client call. And instead of frustrating me as it might have in the past, it filled me with such love and joy. A joy that I can even feel right now as I recount it to you. Like the bright red of an early spring tulip against the bright white of winter snow, the moments of joy in my life pop with a new clarity. And I now realize that part of my commitment in my new way of living, part of the way that I'll forever be changed coming out of this, is to know that seeking joy is not a luxury that I just fit in when I have time. It's a necessity for my life. The new me that's emerging from the winter of this time is someone who prioritizes joy. And joy is something I think we all could use more of right now. So we're really fortunate today to have on our podcast an expert on joy. Ingrid Fatel Lee is the author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. I know that Ingrid spent many, many years studying and understanding the importance of joy. And yet it feels like this conversation was so perfectly timed, at least for me, and I hope it was for you as well. 
Jerry and Inger talk about how joy can not only be something that can just make our lives a little lighter right now, it can actually serve as a source of resiliency and be an impetus for our own growth. And it can bring us all closer together. So it's my pleasure to share with you all today this conversation between Jerry Clona and Ingrid Fatale on joy. Reboot Your Year is our invitation to you to pause and honor the transition into this new year. This simple yet powerful five-day course will guide you through this annual transition with grace and open you to the promise and hope of the year ahead. The course unfolds through daily emails, each with a koan to consider and a guided journaling practice handcrafted by the Reboot team. Each day's practice takes less than 20 minutes to complete. We hope you'll enjoy this course so much you'll make it part of your annual practice. We've heard from many of you that you have, and you'll share it with teammates and colleagues as well. Learn how to reboot your year at reboot.io slash reboot new year. Hey, Ingrid. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks how are you for doing? having me. I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing as, as well as could be given the circumstances. Yeah. 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 So let's, let's dive in and we'll explain the circumstances. Why don't you take a moment and just introduce yourself? I like to have that. Tell us who you are. Sure. I'm Ingrid Fatelli. I am a designer and an author and I write about joy. Yes, you do. And I want to also acknowledge that uh, while I'm in Boulder, Colorado, you're on Long Island right now. And if you don't mind, maybe we just, for more context, um, you're going to be a mama. I am. Yeah. I'm three months out from, uh, yeah, my first, my first little one. So, yeah. 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 So yeah, let's talk about joy. And the name of the book I should say is joyful, the surprising power of ordinary things to create extraordinary happiness. Did I get that right? That's it. Yeah. So let's set some context here, and then we'll, maybe we'll talk about joy in the time of the plague. Um, simple question, which you've probably had to answer about a bazillion times. So what's the difference between joy and happiness? I, I have answered this a lot, but I think actually right now it's really important, um, this distinction. Yeah. So the way that psychologists define happiness is as a broad evaluation of your life over time and how you feel about your life. So it encompasses a lot of factors. It encompasses things like how we feel about our work, whether we feel connected to other people, whether we feel like we have a sense of meaning and purpose in life, all of those things get rolled into happiness. Psychologists also use the term subjective well-being. That's the jargony term for happiness. And I think what's challenging about happiness is it, it can be a little bit vague, right? Um, so one part of your life is up and another part of your life is down and it's hard to know exactly, am I happy? So this question, am I happy? I think we often ask ourselves that. Whereas joy is much simpler and more immediate. And I know we use these two words interchangeably a lot, but they, but they are different. So joy is an emotion. 
Um, and it is an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. So when we feel joy, we feel it not just in our minds, we also feel it in our bodies. One of the ways that psychologists measure joy is through physical expressions, so smiling, laughter, a feeling of wanting to jump up and down. And I think the, the real important distinction here is the time component, right? If happiness is, is sort of a, a broader assessment of, you know, how am I this month? How am I this week? Joy is how am I feeling right now, like in this moment? And given the time that we're in, the reason I think it's such an important distinction now is it's very reasonable not to be happy right now. Mm. And most of us are not happy right now with the state of the world and, and watching this pandemic unfold. But we are... I think allowed moments of joy. And I think we need moments of joy in that. And so to recognize that they're two different things and that you don't have to be happy to feel joy is really important. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to pause and acknowledge that what just felt so important, that last bit there. Uh, like you, I'm sure I'm finding so many people feeling bereft, empty, you know, and I was struck by the uh, beautiful and succinct list of the uh, characteristics of happiness that you sort of rattled off. Uh, and clearly, and I know because I, I have a little insight, I know you worked long and hard on this book. And so you really research the question deeply. And that notion of that list, which included connection to other humans, as I've said ad hoc, both on this show and in my own book and time and time again, I think that we are organized to seek love, safety, and belonging. And safety and belonging feel particularly threatened right now. Love is hard to hold on to when our arms can only reach through a video screen, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I was struck by your observation that, in a sense, we are, we are I, I'll build upon what you said by saying, I think we are rightfully, appropriately challenged to feel happy right now. Yes. Right. And that uh, to, to, to find sustained happiness when we are living under a shadow of economic challenge that seemed unimaginable just two, three weeks ago, unless you were wisely forecasting or wisely listening to people like Bill Gates in 2015, right? Which I had not, I'll, I'll acknowledge. It, it, it seems perfectly appropriate to question that. And um, what I'm realizing, just listening to that, that quick first response, was that um, finding and cultivating moments of joy may be the antiviral supplement that we all need. You're nodding. Does that make sense? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, you know, there's a science piece to this, which is yeah. that 
research shows that when we're able to find moments of joy or moments of positivity, they don't have to be big, but these small moments within a crisis um, or within a tragedy, that it enables a couple of things. One, that it helps reset our physiological responses to stress so that it actually aids our resilience in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that it also facilitates a more adaptive coping style. That's the psychologist term um, that we are more likely to grow from adversity um, when we have these glimmers mm-hmm. of joy um, mm-hmm. or gratitude or love or affection within our negative times um, mm-hmm. within our struggle than if we don't allow those in. And I think that some of that is about finding it and some of that is about allowing it because sometimes when things are this hard, it's hard to allow ourselves. We feel like it's not necessarily appropriate to be laughing or it's not appropriate to be joyous, but allowing ourselves that recognizing that it is deeply human to find these moments of joy everywhere in any time, I think, and recognizing that it is a part of, we're hardwired to find joy because it's a part of our survival. You know, we don't live in this just subsistence state. Our emotions are not calibrated for that. They're calibrated to to find these little spikes of joy because it's a part of thriving. It's a part of what helps us thrive. And and we may not be thriving now, but but the the glimmers of it, I think, help help sustain us through times mm-hmm. like this. And whether we think about it scientifically or whether we think about it philosophically, I think they are a, a, an important part of what will make us resilient in mm-hmm. the face of crises like this. Mm-hmm. As you, as you were speaking, I had two discrete but related thoughts. The first was sort of more intellectualized, which was uh, to relate. Uh, you, you, you said something to the effect of we're not wired just for that subsistence level. Right. Um, And which brought me to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what I'm hearing and reading into what you're saying is that part of our need is for happiness and joy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think if we don't acknowledge that, if if we miss that, we're missing a huge piece of what it means to be human. And I think that actually that is one of the challenges I see in the world around joy, even in good times, is that because we believe that joy is superfluous or unnecessary, that allows us to make all kinds of decisions that push it to the margins of our lives. Um, I study aesthetics. I study the way that we look, that, that we create our physical environments. And I think you can see that we have pushed joy out of many um, physical environments, our workplaces, our schools, many schools mm-hmm. above primary school are joyless mm-hmm. places um, in the way that they are constructed. Um, they have no color, they have no life or vibrancy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can see it in hospitals where mm-hmm. these things are designed for the ba- the bare minimum, right? Not for any joy. Um, and then I think you can see it most clearly in the places that house marginalized people. Um, mm-hmm. The nursing homes, right? Um, th- those tend to be quite joyless. Um, the uh, housing projects, homeless shelters, places designed for the poor, where we believe that this isn't necessary, it's just extraneous, right? The, the, they're the niceties of life. Um, mm-hmm. But actually recognizing that 
So you can see, you can see physically this tendency to push joy off and to mm. feel like it's not essential, but biologically joy is absolutely essential as essential so, as love. So you're helping me realize something, uh, not just at the organized soci- sociological level, but really at the personal and individual level. And that is the other thought that occurred to me when you were talking about allowing ourselves to feel joy. I have been struggling these last few weeks um, uh, questioning myself for feeling joy Hmm. Um, on a personal level. um, I'm moving ahead with purchasing a new home which sounds either incredibly smart or incredibly delusional. Um, And yet, um, as I did just before we started recording, I showed you pictures, I look at pictures, and it produces that upswell. You know it, right? I don't know the science, you know the science, right? My body is flooded with, right? Just imagining the views from that house. Mm. But the second source of joy that I've had is extraordinary. It's in the joy that comes from helping and being there for others. Mm-hmm. And it's a very confusing state for me as a first responder to suffering, as I often see myself. Because, um, for example, I did a, I called into a client company's uh, all-team meeting yesterday. And um, there was a moment of bittersweet joy. I don't know how else to describe it, but... Uh, we're the, the collective, the average age of the collective is probably somewhere in the mid thirties. Most of them like you are having munchkins and, um, their predominant worry was for their parents who are in their sixties, their seventies, their eighties. You know, those of us in our society right, right now we're all fixated and focused on the people who are at risk. Leave aside for a moment the statistics which are coming out of New York, which show that there is equal danger across the board. We're fixated on that. And one man was telling the story of his father who um, runs a baseball training facility. And he just pauses and he gets very emotional. He says, he lo- my father loves baseball. It produces joy. How do I tell him not to keep that facility open. Hmm. And so what I said was, we were talking about the fact that he has a, he has a young boy, this fellow. And I said, okay, this is a little bit of a trick I played, which was to tell him to tell his father that he wants him to live long enough to teach his grandson to play baseball. Hmm. That's the way. And, um, that's what I mean when I say it's bittersweet, right? Because um, if for a brief moment in time through a video screen in front of 50 other people, perhaps there was a human connection that like electricity went from me to that young man who was struggling in that in-between stage between his son and his father. Right. And me being somewhat of the elder Uncle Jerry, which is like my new 
that's my new moniker, Uncle Jerry, um, to say, here's how we all can stay connected. And it's, it's in that connection between um, the joy of the connection and the currency of the pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Does this resonate with, with your findings? Or Absolutely. I mean, I think that, well, I mean, there's, there are two levels to this. One is the answer you gave, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it speaks to the fact that there are joys that are not available to us right now. Or that, and, and the thing I was thinking is, I was thinking that, you know, joy is one of the things that pulls us towards things that are good for us. It's how we know, right? We feel this light inside and we feel a little more alive and it pulls us towards something. And in that moment, you know, the, the interaction you had, he was basically saying it's pulling him toward a thing, but in this moment, that is not adaptive. That is not safe. And you basically substituted another joy. You substituted a future joy to help him understand um, Mm. that there are times when we must suspend certain joys and the promise of others is what will sustain us. Um, And this may be one of those times. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no. No, say more, say more, I'm sorry. No, um, I, just that the, it is that, um, yeah, it's that promise that joy will come back again. That is what will hold us through this. Thank you for naming it that way, because I think that part of the guilt that I've been feeling, and I'll name it as that because that's what it feels, I firmly believe joy will come back. Mm-hmm. And therefore, happiness will be will come back. And I I can't I can't figure out where that sensibility comes from, other than the fact that I have been so low in my life, so bereft of happiness, that perhaps my body and my brain have uh, as if they're two separate things, right? Uh, my mind has come to understand the veracity of the thing that my old psychoanalyst, my former psychoanalyst, Dr. Sayers, used to say to me all the time, this too shall pass. Yes. Yes. And I think this is, for me, the essence of, is probably one of the most important things that's come from my work is recognizing that joy is transient. All joys are transient. Sometimes they're followed right on, you know, the, the, the ending wave of one is followed right on the heel, on its heels by another, like waves in the ocean. And sometimes there's a lull and we go through a low period. Um, but recognizing that it is, like a wave and that it will rise again is the most powerful thing we can do in, in a trough in the Valley, because I think what happens when we start to hold ourselves back from it. And I know this has been true for me is that when I've held myself back from feeling the pain of the lows, it, it numbs the, the body and mind numbs both right? It numbs our emotional capacity and we can't feel the highs in the same way either. Yeah. We can't feel that elevation. So understanding that it is cyclical, that it rises and falls, but that there's also 
amplitudes to this and that you can have moments of bittersweetness. You can have moments of joy that feel poignant, that feel powerful within a crisis, just Mm -hmm. as you can have disappointments within an incredibly happy time. And then Mm -hmm. that, you know, those two things exist in parallel. Yeah. It, it, you know, part of that resilience that you spoke of before, I think is um, there's an, there's an old set of wisdom, which is that in order to experience the joy, you have to experience the love. You have to experience the fullness of what's going on Mm. and that the two are connected. And I think of uh, one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, um, the Buddhist saint Milarepa, who um, was a really complex and wonderful dude. Um, uh, In one of his beautiful songs, he sings of the fact that um, you cannot separate the clouds from the sky, just as you cannot separate the waves from the ocean. And, um, and, and, And the point of the message is that in order to experience the ocean, you have to experience the waves. Mm. In order to experience the expansiveness of the sky, you have to experience the sun being blocked by clouds. Absolutely. Um, and and so what we're to get pragmatic for a moment, I think what we're both circling around is this notion that to find joy right now means to allow yourself to be open to the fullness of the bittersweetness of this time. Mm-hmm. And the guilt. I mean, to acknowledge that there is, you know, that's not a, there's no judgment in the guilt either, right? Just the Mm -hmm. acknowledgement that you feel it, I think, can create space for it, as opposed to trying to push it away and push it away and push it away. So I think... Creating space for all of the emotions that we're feeling in this time and recognizing that it is a, sorry to interrupt, I just, the way that I've been thinking about it for myself is that um, my emotions are are a terrain I'm moving through Mm -hmm. as opposed to a part of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I visualize it that way, it's helpful. It's like I'm walking through this landscape and there are days that I walk through that I'm crying and I can't stop. And then a few hours later, something miraculous happens. The baby kicks or something. And I am moving through this terrain and I am seeing all of it. And it's not me, but I'm experiencing it. And I think that helps a little bit. It helps me see that then there will be other emotions in the future. This road I'm on is long. It's not just what's right in front of me now. It's beautiful and from one lens, not at all surprising that we had actually similar thoughts when we were uh, briefly talking over each other. And, and that is I was visualizing hiking recently, mm. which I'm still allowed to do with my son, Michael, who's 22. And just last night, we took a walk around a lake nearby. And as, as often as he and I have walked the landscape, the terrain here, I hadn't walked with him in that way 
taking that angle. And of course, you know, if you walk clockwise around a lake, you see one view. If you walk counterclockwise, you see another view, right? Right. Uh, which is also important to remember that we can change our views. Mm. And at one point, he just sort of stopped and he stared at the lake and the sun was setting. And it was a sort of post-dinner. We'd both been staring at screens all day. We stood at the lake and we just watched and we listened to the birds calling for the end of the sunlight as they do. And we looked up and saw the hills dotted with houses whose lights had just turned on and little patches of snow. And he just stood there and he just said, oh, so beautiful. And it was a source of sustenance. It felt like food after starvation. And there's a sharpness, I think, about this time in which we are uh, finding the, the extraordinary power of those moments and the preciousness of those moments. Yes. You know, um, not to be the old parent in this conversation, but um, there will come a day when your baby is no longer inside your body kicking. Right. Um, soon. Won't. <laughs> soon. <laughs> Maybe not soon enough. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I'll keep them in there as long as I can right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but there's a preciousness. Mm. Right. Um, there's a preciousness. I mean, what it's making me recall is uh, I, I don't think I will ever forget God. God, I hope I never forget what it feels like to hold one of my children in my hands from the tip of my overly large hands mm. to the crook of my elbow. Mm. Right? Or, or, or to know what it feels like when after a bath, uh, they snuggle into the crook of my neck. Mm. And the smell of the fresh, organic, non-GMO <laughs> shampoo comes and they take a sigh. <sighs> and um, as I say, my, my youngest is 22. Mm. And so it's been a long chronological time since I had those feelings, but they are in my body. Hmm. I mean, it, what it makes me think of is just the power of the human mind to time travel through joy, mm. right? That we, we have within us all our memories. We carry them. And in times like this, those memories can be sustenance, just as experiences of intense mm beauty and nature can be sustenance. Mm. And we also have the power to anticipate joy, which when we think to the future, you know, when I, people ask me, how do I find joy right now? One of the things I say is go back through your camera roll. <laughs> Sounds really mm. mundane, but go back and look at moments of joy that were, you know, 
even not too distant. And just remember that those will happen again, that you will mm. have moments like that again. And they may look different because everything's going to be different. You know, it's not mm. that we're, we're going to go back to the way things were, but recognize mm. that those will happen again. And the other thing you can do is think about something you want to do when, when things are over, right? When this crisis is over, what, mm. what mundane thing that you once took so for granted would be so joyous to do and think about that. Um, and we can't make plans for it yet, but we can anticipate it. And um, the richness of our imagination and the richness of our memories, the multi-sensory quality of those things is so powerful that it can bring joy into the present, mm. even in a difficult time. Mm. I've got a small suggestion as well that I know works for me. I planted a tree the other day. Mm. You know, um, and for those who've read my book, you'll understand the reference. Uh, I planted a horse chestnut tree, which had been a gift to me from, from a client. And as a boy, um, a horse chestnut tree had meant so much to me. And I'm finding comfort and joy in the belief that 20 years from now, somebody will uh, be shaded by that tree. Mm. You know, I loved your suggestions and I'm realizing that, you know, without really being conscious about doing it, I'm finding myself in little ways in each day, um, finding those ways to inject that joy. Hmm. You know, and that it can be for others and it can be for others i, I was just going to say one of the things that that I, that is happening for me even in this moment is this conversation hmm. is producing that for me you me know I, I remember before your book was published and the anxiousness i i remember a conversation we had about like you having to write at your desk and and spending the days and not being able, and then a year later, I was stuck at my desk doing the same thing. <laughs> and all of the pain. And, I remember and that well. <laughs> right? You were like, I don't know if 14 hours a day at a desk is a really good idea. And I was like, I know, but I gotta, I gotta get it done. And I was like, no other way to get this book out of me. <laughs> and yet, um, it's funny that we were both like that. I find myself these days, first of all, uh, I'll acknowledge that um, for the first time in about six or seven years, I have zero airline tickets in my inbox. Mm. I'm not traveling. Right. Um, and uh, travel was always an impediment for me writing. Mm. And uh, what I'm finding myself drawn to right now is saying, okay. I actually need to do some more writing um, because that produces joy. Writing without a deadline and writing without an e <laughs> publisher knocking on yes. the door. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think what that speaks to also for me is um, there are peculiar joys of hard mm. times, very mm. peculiar joys that you will not discover until you are in them. There is a joy in slowness. There is a joy in a weird joy in being home all the time. 
Yes. Um, and it, one of the things I've been thinking about is how it is redefining my notion of home when your whole world is your home and all you can leave to do or take walks home is a very different world than the place you drop your bags between trips, right? Um, or the place you come home at night and you meet and you cook dinner and you watch a little TV and you fall asleep and you, and you do it again, you leave the house. And so cook dinner, you mean order dinner. In New York, most of the time, order dinner, right? And that the the discovery of cooking every day. I mean, we you know moving right. back to, to that behavior. There are things you notice. Um, right. I mean, the house that we're sheltering in place in uh, was intended to be a weekend place, and now we're here right. full time. And things I'm noticing. There's a a little rent. It started with a knocking. There was a knocking mm. on the side of the house. And I thought, is there a woodpecker trying to bore mm. into the side of our house? Mm. And we listened to it over time. And then Albert started to notice that it was a wren. Mm. And so it wasn't, he wasn't knocking. He's not trying to get into the wood. He's building a nest. And he's mm. trying to pull the dried clematis off the side of the house to make this mm. nest. And so today I heard the knocking and I just went and watched him and I watched him root around in the garden and I watched his mate in one of the bushes and I was starting to pinpoint, you know, is that where they're building the nest? And there was a really profound, but very simple joy for me in watching this unfold. Something that I never actually get to see because I'm in and out of here often, so, you know, just for a couple of days at a time. So there are things and and that will change us as we go forward, I think. Um, so. And, the, and, and I think what I'm hearing you note is that in the busyness of our lives, um, we lose, we overlook the possibilities of joy and the forced slowness, um, and which by the way, we need to acknowledge is scary and frightening and devastating for for so many folks and there's a privilege in being able to say i am safe yes and i huge feel privilege safe. a huge privilege and the acknowledgement of that to the side for a moment there's something really important going on and hopefully a more longer term shift you know in my book i wrote about busyness as a means of distracting from the fullness of our lives yes it's almost like a, a conscious uh looking away and your story and albert's realization that it, it was a wren brings me back to the realization that uh, you know myself and all my airline trips all my airplane trips have led me to at times overlook the 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 wren's building of a nest mm. and um you know i've been exhorting companies right now to um, use this time period as a call to action for building humane workspaces mm. and i will um, follow the heed of Thich Nhat Hanh, the buddhist teacher who says um peace begins with me Maybe maybe the right next step for me in my life is to make sure that I'm creating spaces for the wren. Hmm. And that 
I look askance at busyness and look twice at those airline tickets. Hmm. The question that has been with me lately is this question of how do we grow through this time? Because I am privileged to be safe right now, at least for right now. And let's hope that that stays that way. Um, I think, yeah, I think that is, sounds like that's what you're, you're pointing towards is what is the growth that comes from this. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, in the busy, it's hard to grow in busyness. Yes. I mean, maybe there are kinds of growth that happen in busyness. I, I suppose that's not necessarily true. I, I certainly grew, I grew outwardly a lot in my busy right. period. I conquered right. my fear of public speaking and I did a lot of, I, I, I grew in a lot of ways through that. Um, but the deep growth, the, the growth of, the soul, mm-hmm. the growth of our capacity to feel, the growth of our capacity to understand. I don't think that is as dimensional in a time of busyness. I think the slowness is a maybe more fertile environment for that, as difficult as it is to say that. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an image that, that, has, that I have carried in my life for a few decades now, and that is of the farmer. Um, And I've often thought about this around my own life, which is that there are times in my soul when I must plant, Mm -hmm. and then there are times in which I reap and I harvest. Um, And um, for me, um, the, the writing of my book, was a time of harvesting. Um, the year or so of being out in the world in this extraordinarily um, externalized way was a time of distribution of that. And uh, my soul needs me to tend to the inner landscape, to the terrain, mm. um, the internal so that three or four years from now, there's another harvesting mm-hmm. that will mm-hmm. come. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could not be the coach I am had I not tended to the inner terrain for years. And um, I'm re- in our conversation brought me back to, to understanding that, um, that, that, that old biblical notion of a time for harvesting and a time for planting and a time for rest and um, we're certainly in that time of shift right now right i it reminds me i often think about it in a similar way of thinking about it i think about it in terms of seasons and um, i don't know where i first heard it but someone talked about creative winters mm-hmm. and that you go through periods where you can't seem to make anything you can't seem to put together a piece. And I think a lot of people are struggling with this right now where they feel like they have tons of time yet. They're so anxious. They're not feeling productive and they're struggling with that. But I have all this time. 
but I don't seem able to use it. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that there are dormant periods and that dormant mm-hmm. periods in nature are actually still quite active. Mm-hmm. Right. And that there's work happening under the soil and that there are, there are things happening in that tree. There are buds that are actually set, but not open yet. That always really helps me to recognize mm-hmm. that maybe writing, if you're, if you're able to write, write. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not able to write, that's okay too. That, Sometimes we don't know what will happen as a result, but there's, there's work happening now, mm-hmm. even if we're not actively pursuing it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I found our conversation so helpful, um, so joyful, and, uh, and dare I say, contributing even to my happiness. Me too. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. And and may everyone find the wren's nest outside their windows. Mm. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you, Jerry. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast. To listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Jerry Colonna. Thanks for listening to the Reboot Podcast. Check out my book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. I hope it really moves you.